0: The scripture reading is printed for you there in the bulletin. Uh, there are two uh, t- uh, translations that uh, put this a little bit differently. It's easy to understand how it could be turned around because we say the former and the latter. Uh, but this is the New American Standard Version here, and I'll read this because it is the one printed in your bulletin. Matthew 21:28 to 32. It's another of the characters that uh, Jesus uh, speaks about. Uh, This is very important to be seen in its context. He had just come into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, He had come in as the Messiah. Uh, He comes and the people are shouting, Hosanna, which means, God save us. Uh, They were overjoyed. one who had raised Lazarus from the dead should be coming now into their capital city. This evidently had set Herod on edge. It would have also made Pilate's uh, agents uh, quickly aware of his authority and power and influence among the people. It was at a time when there would have been great throngs of people in Jerusalem. And then he enters that week into a series of teachings that take place in the temple. Just before this episode occurs here, He has seen a fig tree with a great profusion of green growth, but with no figs upon it. And this has reminded him of the nation of Israel, which had all of the privileges of all that God could give them, and yet with their great profusion of flattering and polite speech, they were not producing the fruits which should have been born, and indeed they crucify the Messiah." It's in the light of that that he tells this story to the scribes and to the Pharisees. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And then the lesson from Ephesians, verses, is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, This speaks of repentance unto life. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, therefore laying aside falsehood Speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word.
1: And I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because. Tender word I hear, and resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fear.
0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for those things which we have already seen this day, which remind each one of us of our own commitments to you at one time or another, and some of us that we need to refresh that commitment this morning. We pray for this great nation in which we dwell, and for its need of repentance and change. We pray for the Church, and for its need of repentance also. And we pray for our own hearts that you will speak to us this day, that we shall go out of the chapel differently from the way that we came in. And we pray that you will take the gifts which we have offered and superintend their use and grant that they may bring glory and honor to your name and that we may glorify you by loving you and by doing what you command. Now bless us in this service. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to know that um, it's been a great and happy privilege for me to go through the um, communicants class with uh, three young men, Bethany King, who is not here this morning, and also Kristen Taglarini. It's so encouraging to me to see young lives that come from Christian homes, where both the mother and the father are people who are interested in, in teaching Jesus Christ in true faith to their children. You can see them grow uh, in front of you. I take each one of these separately and talk to them separately. And uh, we uh, enjoyed our times of discussion together. Now, one of the reasons that I said this today is that I printed in your bulletin a tale of two sons, this story that Jesus told. I printed it because it's going to teach us a lesson. A lesson that it is bad to be insincere uh, when we uh, speak about faith in God or faith in Christ. That there is danger in a formal allegiance to Him that has no heartfelt meaning. There is also a danger in being deceived by feeling alone and substituting a religious feeling or sentiment for action that should take place in our lives. I want to illustrate repentance unto life by going to a little book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is uh, familiar to our communicants. In fact, Timothy Akers told me he would read it three times. I hope I don't get corrected (laughs) this morning when I'm going through this. For those of you who have not had the privilege of knowing much about C.S. Lewis, uh, you will recall that he was the famous Oxford uh, specialist in Renaissance literature, that he was a man himself who did not come to Christ until late in life. He had a profound experience of grace that brought repentance and true faith into his life. After leaving Oxford, he went to Cambridge. And there he taught. When he was 54 years old, he began to write a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote these for one of his godchildren, Jeffrey. He started off with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He brings us into a world called Narnia, a fantasy world. But children need fantasy. If you do not give them good fantasy to read, then you'll hear them quietly up watching video uh, rock. Uh, That's exactly why that stuff is there. The great psychiatrist of children is a man by the name of Bruno Biedelheim. He says that C.S. Lewis's fantasies are the finest thing you can give to children to read. And interestingly enough, he wrote these for anyone over nine years old. He wrote them so that little uh, uh, shorter words would be used, so that you could read a chapter at night, and many a mother and dad has had to read another chapter uh, when you started reading them. Because he wanted you to experience fantasy that taught truth. Given a world like Narnia, he wondered what faith in God would be like, what faith in the Redeemer would be like, what evil would be like, what good would be like what repentance would be like. And so, in teaching repentance, uh, it's good to look at the voyage of the dawn-treader, and especially to what happens to a very... uh, (laughs) I'm laughing because our communicants this morning instructed me carefully which names they wanted used at this service. (laughs) You know, you have to get all that secret information from them. But uh, they advised me which names they preferred to be used. And this book, the Voyage, of, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, starts out talking, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrubb, and he deserved it. <laughs> uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he deserved it. Uh, because it's going to tell us about this odious, obnoxious, miserable, ungrateful wretch <laughs> who came to live with his, who came, his cousins had to come and spend some time with him and he had to spend some time with them and he complains about everything he's a smart Alec. Uh, he is one of those uh... very trying people he liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools <laughs> This is Eustace Clarence. He disliked his cousins, uh, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. Now, Edmund and Lucy are the two that are going to be with him here. And uh, he really is a trial to them. And when he comes into their life, uh, he uh, is like uh, relatives that are very pesky. And they come to you. This happens all the time in Montreat. And you have to... uh, You, 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 you have them there, and they are obnoxious. They don't like the food. They don't like anything uh, about being with you. They complain about everything. And uh, uh, he has been described as a low-grade, permanent cynic. Uh And you're stuck with him. And that's the way they work. Now, they, he comes into the room, and he criticizes a picture in the room. The picture that he criticizes is a picture of a ship. And the ship is the Dawn Treader. That's the name of a beautiful little ship. But he has to put it down. But in Narnia, fantasy can take place. And as they look at the Dawn Treader, suddenly you begin to hear the sound of the sea. And the wind sweeps out of the picture and whips Lucy's hair around. And the water splashes up on their face and they are caught away into the land of Narnia. You see, you can do that in fantasy. And uh, there in the land of Narnia, they are on the ship, the Dawn Treader. And uh, Little st- uh, Scrubs is no better in Narnia than he is in England. Uh, Eustace is thoroughly obnoxious on board the ship. He doesn't like the food. Uh, he will not do his part to help out on the ship. And then finally the ship gets into a tremendous storm. Prince Caspian, a great figure, is there, a powerfully built, blonde uh, young prince. And he's on board the ship. And uh, he can't even impress uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, But the ship gets into a wreck. They have to go ashore on an island. But what Eustace Clarence does not know is that this is a dragon island. And uh, they make their way. Eustace Clarence makes his way, he's supposed to be helping out with the rest of them in doing things, but uh, he succeeds in getting himself lost, trying to explore. And he comes up on a dragon cave. And you know dragons are usually guarding treasures. And so he sees that this dragon is dying. And uh, you don't run into a dying dragon every day. And uh, uh, then you don't see all these treasures every day that are collected around him. And the selfish, obnoxious little boy runs where the gold bracelets are and begins to strap them onto his arms and put the rings onto his finger and uh, pick up the coins and the diamonds and the rubies and the emeralds and the pearls and glory in his riches. And then he falls asleep. Don't ever fall asleep in a dragon cave. Because you will have undragonly thoughts and you will be an undragonly person and when he wakes up he sees a horrible claw, he sees a big paw of a dragon and he is scared to death when he looks out of his right eye and he sees that awful claw of the dragon and he looks out the left eye and he sees another claw of a dragon and then he sees steam come up in front of his eyes. And then he goes to where there is a pool, and he looks in, and horror of horrors. He thought it was awful when he tried to get up. He is the dragon. He has been turned into a dragon himself. And one of the gold bracelets on his arm to give him pain, because when he was a little skinny boy, it didn't make any difference, but now it's cutting into his big paw as a dragon. And he is perfectly miserable. He is miserable. And then he goes back to where his cousins are. And he's a much nicer dragon than he was a little boy. He begins to weep and to cry. And they see him, and he acts in a Eustace sort of way. And they say, are you Eustace? And he has to answer yes, that he's been turned into a dragon. And, oh, they feel sorry for him. But now that he's been turned into a dragon, he begins to have a sense of his sin and misery, as Joseph said in repentance unto life. He begins to see how awful he really was when he was a little boy. And do you know what he does? He begins to make himself useful. He goes off in the woods and he gets some pigs for them to eat because they're going to be hungry. And uh, they need a new mask for the... Uh, For and he goes and with his great strength as a dragon he pulls up a tree that they can make into a a mast on the ship and generally he begins to reform he changes and begins to do things that show that he is changing and then there comes an event that takes place in his life uh, that's really good because now they get the ship Fixed again and they can go off of this desert island, this dragon island. But what are they going to do with Eustace? He's been turned into a dragon. And he's so big that if they put him on the ship, he'll sink part of it. They think about dragging him along in back of it like a barge, but they don't know if that'll work. They wonder if he could fly. He has wings. But then they think he'll get tired. And then the biggest worry they have is, what in the world can they feed him? Because dragons eat a lot. And uh, they know that they wouldn't have enough to feed him. And so uh, they are concerned about him. Well, this is where the change takes place. And that's the point that I want to illustrate from uh, Lewis's book. I wish I had time to read you more of it. But he's explaining, he comes back close to the camp. And uh, he has been changed back into a little boy again. And he is explaining about how he got changed back into a little boy. He comes up on Edmund, uh, and Edmund recognizes him uh, and uh, sees that Eustace is changed. By Job, said Edmund, Uh, you are Eustace. Hush said Eustace, and lurched as if he were going to fall. What's up? Are you ill? Eustace was silent for so long that Edmund thought he was fainting, but at last he said it's been ghastly, you know, but it's all right now. Could we go and talk somewhere? Yes, anywhere you like, said Edmund. We can go and sit on the rocks over there. I'm glad you see I'm glad to see you uh, looking like yourself again. <laughs> you must have had a pretty beastly time of it. They went to the rocks and they sat down looking out across the bay while the sky got paler and paler and the stars disappeared, except for one bright, low star near the horizon. I won't tell you how I became a dragon until I can tell the others at the same time and get it all over with," said Eustace. By the way, I didn't even know I was a dragon until I heard you all using the word when I turned up here the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. Now, that's the theme of our lesson this morning, How to Change a Dragon. Fire ahead, said Edmund. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever, and that beastly bracelet was hurting like anything. Is that all right now? Eustace laughed a different laugh than Edmund had heard him give before, and he slipped the bracelet off his arm. He threw it to him and said, There it is. Anyone who likes it can have it as far as I'm concerned. As I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me, and then, but mind you, it may have all been a dream, I don't know. Go on, said Edmund. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected to see. A huge lion. Now, the lion is Christ. If you've ever been to Trafalgar Square in London, you've seen a huge lion. And you can count a whole bunch of kids that could sit on the back of it, and that huge lion is the Christ figure. And that's what Lewis is teaching here. Uh, A huge lion was coming slowly toward me, and one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, and yet there was moonlight where the lion was. There was a glow from the lion. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily, but I wasn't afraid that way. I wasn't afraid of it eating me, I was just afraid of it. If you can understand, well, it came up close to me and looked straight in my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know that you mention it. I don't know that it did. But it told me all the same, and I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever we went. So at last we came up to the top of the mountain. I'd never seen this mountain before and on top of it there was a garden and trees and fruit and everything. I knew it was... I saw a well in front of me and I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. I think this is an allusion to baptism. But it was a lot bigger than most wells like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything. I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. You see that old gold bracelet on his leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said it in words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have any clothes on. When I suddenly that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Well, of course, I thought that that's what the lion means. And so I started scratching myself, and my scales began to fall off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down to the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. I'll have to get out of it. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other. And I went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off for I was longing to bathe my sore leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two. I stepped out of it, but as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you that, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back, and I let him. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you put the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it's such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought. Uh, Just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. And I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath. And then he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after a while it became perfectly delicious. And soon I started swimming and splashing. And I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I knew why. I had turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know that I have no muscle as compared with Caspian, but I was so glad to see my own arms again. When you repent, God will make you love yourself and accept yourself as you are. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't remember exactly that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes. The same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. Then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, said Eustace? I think... You've seen Aslan. You see, Aslan is Christ, said Edmund. Now that's exactly what happens in repentance unto life, which Joseph said this morning. Timothy caught the point very quickly the other day. When I asked him for examples from Scripture, he could cite examples how you put off the old man and put on the new. That passage that I read a moment ago from Ephesians, That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he told the story of the two boys. One repented. The boy who had been so horrible, who had disturbed everyone else and had been a perfect terror at breakfast, was a joy in the evening. He had changed his mind. Maybe when he walked away he realized how much havoc he had created. And like Eustace, repentance comes. And it's a very refreshing, delicious feeling. You can accept yourself again when you've come clean. And you're really honest before God. And you really let him work in your heart and mind and life. That's what Jesus went to Nicodemus when he said, "Except a man, be born again he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the church had better get back to preaching this again and preaching it with great power and authority. This week, both Time and Newsweek, had cover stories of the acquired immune deficiency, AIDS, that syndrome, and of the horror that it's reaped in the population already and only the tip of the iceberg has surfaced. And that man who spoke here last Sunday, Dr. William B. Wilson, he is an eminent professor of medicine. He is a brilliant scientist. And he told me at my house that if people knew the extent to which this disease would run its course and how many people would die in the quake, it would frighten them practically out of their wits. And then when you read how it's transmitted, and you understand the gross immorality and the fact that the church does not speak out against immorality. All of us have sympathy for anyone who suffers and we want to alleviate pain and suffering and misery. But the answer is not simply a vaccine and we'll be thankful to God for a vaccine that will cure this. But there is a deeper virus here. There is the virus of sin, a virus of reckless, unrestrained immorality from top to bottom throughout this nation. And no nation can be that way. It is inherently put into the nature of things that if we will not be what God teaches us to be in his word, we cannot make Sodom safe, but we will have to pay the price. And so what we need is repentance. Repentance unto life. What we need is faith in Jesus Christ. What we need is that which causes us out of an apprehension so that we can understand what our sin and misery really is and then look to the mercy that God extends for us from the cross of his and then pray to him that the Holy Spirit might come into our life and make us anew. The Holy Spirit brought repentance to that boy who turned back And did the will of his father. And Jesus said, the flowery professions will do you no good. The saying of things will not work. It must be put into energy and into action in life. And that's where each one of us comes in. There is a dragon in my heart that has to be put to death. I cannot feed that dragon and allow him to take over me and belong to Jesus Christ. I must prove, be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Does that really apply even after you've been in the church a long time and have forgotten some of those vows? You know it does. The Holy Spirit that it does. His word, as Steve told these young boys a while ago, which we need to read day by day, our prayers, which we need to offer to God day by day, are meant to keep us convicted and convinced of the wrongness of sin and prompted to the newness of life in Christ. Repentance is a refreshing thing. This is what Dr. Wilson was studying on last week. Repentance Uh, Metanoia means a changed mind. It's not just sorrow, but it's a changed mind. Grief is there because we know we've done harm, but there is a changed mind and a new way of living. When Eustace changed, he became helpful to the other people. He began to have an apprehension of what had happened in his life. And that's what Lewis was seeking to teach. And that's what Jesus is teaching from the parable of those two boys who said, yes, 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 yes. That does no good if it's not accompanied by action. And the one who was rude and arrogant but repented. Now, ideally, we don't need to be rude and arrogant and have to repent. Ideally, we ought to already see That we need Christ. We need God. We need to live by the light of his word. And when we do, then God will work his will out in our lives. And he will show to others what Jesus himself went through when he went to the cross and died to his own will in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. And what he went through in discipleship, we must go through in discipleship. We must die to self in order to live to him. The newness of life is what speaks to us and what speaks to the world of faith in Jesus Christ. It's not polite piety in word, but it's faithfulness. The deeds and the words are hooked together, and those are the things that we have to remember how to change the dragon. You can change the dragon in your heart. You can change the dragon in your home. You can change the dragon in a nation that's going down by individual acts of repentance in response to the Holy Spirit's convicting us of sin and bringing us to the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. Aslan, the great lion, cut a cross and you remember what Eustace said that when his claw cut into him he thought it would strike his heart and that's exactly what Jesus does when Jesus Christ comes into a life he cuts it all the way to the quick and it smarts like anything but then we peel off that old self and a new refreshing self comes to life in us. new life that's lived for him. That's the life that Paul talked about in Ephesians. And that's proof of a new man putting on the new, putting off the old. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. The love which is willing to receive us and make us what we ought to be. We pray that that old dragon in our hearts may be truly put to death and that we may live in faithful, joyful, happy, newness of mind and life in true obedience to Jesus Christ. Help us not to talk beyond our experience with Him, but help us to be honest before you. Help us not to say what we really don't believe, and help us to believe so that we may obey you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.